Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton show is on. Thank you so much for joining. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Much to discuss. We will dive right into the North Korean intercontinental ballistic missile launch just occurred in the last 12 hours or so. Uh, We'll talk about what that means. Things are going to get worse with North Korea. I've been telling you for a long time. I know Trump takes the threat very seriously. I know his literally his top people are on it, Madison company. But this is a this is a problem set that has no. Never mind, no good solutions. I'm not sure it has any solutions uh, worthy of the name right now. We need to get very creative. Uh, Being tough alone may not be enough. Uh, There has to be new thinking, but we'll get there a little later on. We'll also talk about an update on the Hillary email investigation. Just because there's some worthwhile stuff to talk about there, I know that's an, an old story, but there are some new bits of it to work in. We'll talk about that. The media is all upset about Trump. There's nothing new, but we'll talk about that, too, because they're acting like, oh, Trump's a, Trump criticizes them, and that makes him an authoritarian now. The media types are a very sensitive bunch. Um, I, I keep finding this to be the case. And I think that so many of them have for especially those who come out of the journalism schools. Right? They go to a J school afterwards, and they come out, and they've been so focused on being the focus for such a large portion of their adult lives that I think there's often with the uh, with the mainstream media left there's a, just a lack of of perspective they do think they're so much more important and so much more irreplaceable than they really are but some of them we need to bring out the ambulance that will happen later on we will talk about that biggest news item today though other than the North Korea launch in the national security side is a verdict in the uh, of the uh, mastermind uh, Abu Qatala guilty on three of 18 counts. He's the mastermind of the Benghazi attack that killed uh, four Americans serving their country in Libya. Uh, we will get into that discussion coming up in a bit, and I believe we will actually have um, we, we should have uh, Chris Peranto joining us to give his thoughts on it. Uh, Tonto from 13 Hours. I'm sure you're all quite familiar with him. So we're hoping he'll join us in just a bit to talk about that. But Trump had quite a press conference today. Uh, I guess it was with the press pool, which is different than if he gave a, a formal press conference. I don't know. There's some different process where he, he does it and then it's broadcast out for all of us to see. Um but, but, 
the big issue today for the press conference, other than the, than the missile launch with North Korea, which we will spend some time on in detail, is taxes. Now, I don't know. I don't know how interested you are in the back and forth over uh, over the tax fight right now. Here's what's happening on a political level. It's tough to get too worked up about the specifics of any tax bill because we don't know what's going to come out of the conference committee yet. The House has one version. The Senate has another and not even clear it's going to make it through the Senate. I should note it could all come down to Senator McCain. Let me tell you, if Senator McCain has yet another opportunity to just do a, a, a drop kick into the gut of the GOP agenda, he'll do it. He'll do it. I'm, I'm quite confident that will happen. Uh, never mind a few of the other senators who clearly have a, a strained relationship with this White House. So will it make it over the 50 threshold? Here's a a guess on that, a, a prediction, I should say. Here's a prediction. I believe that it'll be 50-50, and then the vice president will have to be the deciding vote. That's my guess. I could be wrong. Who knows? But to get through the Senate, I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing a 50-50 tie with the vice president president um the one who has to break it by mike pence coming in to save the day perhaps that that's just i just got a feeling what am i basing that on i don't know you know am i running all my sources around capitol hill trying to figure this out nope that's just my gut that's what my gut tells me but here's an even more confident prediction i can make for all of you right now Uh, i think that the debt ceiling which is up for renewal right there's all, oh yeah, now Tyrone's pointing to the sky. That is correct. There's all, this is the most boring kabuki theater in American politics. This is the most worthless waste of time political discussion we can have at this point. Because we all know, we all know, it doesn't, I mean, Trump I know is saying they'll blame the Democrats and maybe Trump, if it were just up to him, would. But the GOP Congress will cave Democrats will demagogue the issue. They're going to say, what about student loans and and food for children in schools and old people who need medical care and the and, you know, the military and all this stuff that none of that would be defunded. None of that would be defunded yet. They would say that it is and they'd say that, you know, Republicans are stealing food out of the mouths of babies and letting old people go without their you know, their, their insulin or their, their whatever it is that they need, right? That's, that's going to be the story. And you, you think this Congress that couldn't even figure out an Obamacare adjustment, that's what it was. It was not repeal or replace. It was an adjustment. A good one, fine, but an adjustment nonetheless. You think they're really going to want to go to town and, and get serious on the debt ceiling? No way. No way. So I just, I wish they'd stop wasting our time. I know that there's plenty of people that are going to say, no, Buck, this time they're serious. And and maybe right now optimism for the Republican Party sells. I don't know. Maybe people want to hear optimism. I just try to tell you what I think is the truth. I, I don't like the just just go with what you think folks want to hear. And I don't think the GOP Congress is going to do anything on the debt ceiling other than raise it. 
That's right. They'll raise it. They're talking about DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. They're talking about concessions that they would want to extract from Democrats in exchange for. But we have been to this dance so many times before. Same music is playing. Same dance floor is out there. This will not change. This will not be different. In no way, shape, or form do I see this being anything other than what has been the past. There'll be a debt ceiling. They'll just... They... The metaphor is useful, right? They kick the can down the road. That is what will happen. So I don't even know how much time there is to spend on the debt ceiling. Other than just to tell you, don't listen to all this congressman. Oh, no, the debt ceiling. It's bluster. It's nonsense. Because with the media still has some powers that it is able to uh, utilize to the benefit of Democrats. And one of them is that a government shut in a government shutdown situation, Republicans will be blamed, especially with this administration and with a majority in Congress. Right. The Republicans will be blamed if it's the Democrats who refuse to go along because they are holding the whole budget hostage. Remember, it was all about feeding kids and medicine for old people and funding our military. That all stops being the narrative the moment that the Democrats say, hey, you got to raise the debt ceiling for us or else. You got to you got to raise the debt ceiling for us and that's it. And it's brinksmanship that they will win. They're going to say that, uh, you know, any DACA, anything like that. Nope. They take the maximum position and they win time and time again. So I, I know it's it's frustrating for you. It's frustrating for me. That's just the way it's going to be. On to taxes, though. Trump says it's going to get passed. I think that uh, we're in a very good position in terms of the meeting we just had over at the Capitol with the Republican senators. It was outstanding. I think we have tremendous support. I was just informed by Mitch that we had a unanimous vote from the Republican side, at least. We had a unanimous vote uh, on the tax bill. And it goes now the next step. And I think we're going to get it passed. I think it's going to pass and it's going to be very popular. It's going to have lots of adjustments before it ends. But the end result would be a very, very massive, the largest in the history of our country tax cut. And lots of good things are going to happen, including the bringing back to our country of it probably will end up being over four trillion dollars money offshore that's stagnant that companies and they're just not able to bring it back so i think it's going to be a number over four trillion dollars okay we will see look the, tr- the president's role in all this is to be a deal maker right this should be the president's sweet spot and also a part of that is selling it so he has to be optimistic i do not i do not criticize him for that he's got to and can you imagine the president's like, yeah it's not gonna get done sorry not going to happen this time around. No, I, I don't. I don't think that would be wise. I don't think that would be appropriate under the circumstance. I think the president has to see this uh, as a glass more than half full. Other, otherwise, the Congress then there, then we know there's no chance. Right? Then there's no chance at all. Um, oh, and I should note that probably the most memorable part of the whole press conference was, in fact, the absence of a couple of folks who are supposed to be there: Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They were no-shows. And this, I believe, could come back to to haunt the Democrats. This was a very powerful moment of optics. You got the president of the United States speaking to assorted reporters 
making important um, important case about uh, policy and taxes and the budget and this is the this is the meat and potatoes of what the federal government should be doing figuring out the budgets and figuring out what the tax code is and and handling some other issues as part of that maybe obamacare although maybe not you know they may get rid of the mandate they may not and then daca will they figure out deferred action for childhood arrivals but those chairs were empty pelosi and schumer ghosted this meeting and uh, paul ryan who was there had this to say about it I'll just briefly say, I think it's regrettable that our Democratic colleagues and leadership chose not to join us today. Uh, For a bill to become a law, Congress has to pass a bill and the president signs a bill. That means Congress and the White House always negotiate legislation. We have important work to do. We have big deadlines to meet. We have a military in need of our support. And that work needs to happen now. And I just think it's very regrettable that our Democratic colleagues and leadership chose to not participate because we have to negotiate these bills to get this work done for the people we represent and especially to help our military with these difficult situations we have. And I just hope that our friends in leadership on the other side of the aisle will choose to participate so we can get people's work done. And the scene, as you saw it, if you had a chance, which probably a lot of you were working or doing other stuff, a lot of you were probably just living your lives and did not decide to watch the press conference, but in case you caught some of it, and I tweeted out a a, a still shot of it, they they uh, focused in on the president, and you could see the two empty chairs, and they had the name placards, Pelosi and Schumer, out in front of the empty chairs. It was a great visual. Look, Trump comes from an entertainment and reality TV background. He knows. You couldn't watch that without thinking, hmm, Pelosi and Schumer, huh? No shows. And that's really on policy what we've seen from Democrats all year. They are policy. The Democrats are policy no-shows. They, they don't. There's nothing that Trump can do. There's nothing Trump can offer them that they will want to go along with because they are hashtag resistance. They won't get any votes, any votes at all on the uh, tax package from Democrats. That's my that's my belief. Not in the Senate. Maybe the House is unlikely, though, because opposition is the name of the game for them. It's not about making things better for the American people, not about helping American businesses, not about lessening the burden on so many Americans. All right. um, Do you think I'm being a little too cynical on the whole debt ceiling thing or on taxes? Curious to know what you think. And also, how much do you care about the tax cuts? Obamacare mandate still stays in place. You know, maybe you'll get a thousand bucks back at tax time, but you'll pay, you know, two hundred percent more for your premiums a month. You know, I'm just not sure it's as exciting as some people want to believe it is. But you know, I'm in kind of a mood today. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four. 900 buck light them up we'll be right back with that being said uh, chuck schumer and nancy pelosi did not show up for our meeting today i'm not really that surprised we have a lot of differences they're weak on crime they're weak on illegal immigration they want the illegal folks to come pouring into our border and a lot of problems are being caused although we've stopped it to a large extent as much as you can without the wall which we're going to get they, before this meeting and before this missile launch, they've been weak on military in terms of spending. They're very hard to get 
for military. They want it for a lot of other things, but the military is always secondary to them. The military, to me, is number one. We won't be here without our powerful military, and we're building it up stronger, bigger, better than ever before, and General Mattis can testify to that. And the other thing, they want tax increases, and we want major tax decreases. So they decided not to show up. Uh, they've been all talk, and they've been no action. And now it's even worse. Uh, now it's not even talk. So they're not showing up for the meeting. Not even no action, but no shows. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer would not show up. Look, at that. It is a slap in the face to the administration. I think there's no question about that. Think about all the meetings during the Bush era that President Bush went into with Nancy Pelosi and Schumer and uh, Democrats in Congress. They'd go from calling them like war criminals over morning coffee on the TV to then calling him a war criminal to then they're trying to talk about, you know, no child left behind or uh, you know, Medicare Part D or whatever it was, Social Security reform. Uh, you know, he'd have meetings with them. He would talk to them at least. Uh, meanwhile, they won't even go and talk, but Schumer's talking bipartisanship. I mean, this guy is is such a dishonest and and uh, unctuous character. Bipartisanship and compromise, Mr. President, are very possible on tax reform. It's an issue crying out for a bipartisan solution. There are a lot of areas we agree. We have to work to find a middle ground that's acceptable to both parties. I dare say it would be a better bill for the American middle class than the one we're looking at right now. Oh, yes, the middle class. Democrats love the middle class so much. That's why they gave them the the enormous tax hike of Obamacare. Remember, they only only allowed only constitutional, according to a wrong Supreme Court, uh, because it was a tax. And it was a considerable one. It was a whole bunch of taxes. That is what Obamacare was. Um, And now you have Schumer saying there's going to have to be a a bipartisan solution here. Look, I'm I'm worried, everybody, because there there are some weak need Republicans already in the Senate. And this whole discussion over over tax reform right now is getting so complicated and discombobulated in a lot of ways that people are just going to start tuning out and the swamp is just going to do its swampy thing. D.C. is, which is a swamp, as we know, for those of you who have lived there, uh, D.C. is so good at exhausting us with all of the back and forth and the, the horse race stuff and People are all talking about, oh, yeah, they got Republicans got to put points on the board and this tax bill will be great. No, it's terrible. It's good for middle class. It's bad for middle class. How can anyone even know? I mean, I get 10 different fact checkers out there on this tax bill. They'll give me 10 different answers to every question I can think of. So how excited can we really be? I mean, if you just want to view this in the perspective of the administration needs a win, okay. But I wouldn't bet the farm that this Republican Congress is going to get it done. I just wouldn't. I'll be back. I actually think it's it's kind of funny at some point that you have uh, so many so many journalists who who really must buy into their own press releases about how they're just they're just journalists, right? That nothing really matters. You have uh, Stephanie Rule over at MSNBC who's upset because nobody will let her, no, nobody from the uh, 
White House will talk to her about tax reform. It has been 152 days since the White House has agreed to let me interview someone from the White House who's working on tax reform. 152 days ago, I interviewed Gary Cohn. Since then, when the White House has been on this media tour, they have refused to give me a guest who's one of the architects of this bill. I mean, you know, tough. MSNBC had like its own entrance for the Obama White House. Now you got a Republican in there. I just and there's a lot of news outlets. This is a this is a very messy and unfair world of media and all this complaining and whining about access and a mean administration, all that stuff. It's like they they just don't pay attention. By the way, I just want to know we will get into North Korea in detail in the next hour. I want to spend most of the next hour on the North Korea missile launch. This is a big deal. And I would just say, and Tyrone was reminding me in the break, I've been telling you all along, I like that Trump has made this a front and center issue. What we're doing is not enough. I don't know what is enough. I'm not pretending to have the answer. I just know that what we are doing is not the answer, as I have been saying. Sanctioning a country like North Korea is not as effective as we would like to believe it is. The the history of sanctions as a as a tool of international relations and uh, as and pressure in diplomacy is not encouraging if you want to see what the likelihood is of, of success here so all right there's there's that but on taxes as i've been telling you this is back to that for a moment like i said north korea next hour missile launch icbm this is a big deal they're saying it's the furthest i, I believe mattis has said this is the furthest they have yeah, it went higher than anything they've they've done before. Higher in the sky, this missile launch. So we'll get into it. Um, but you're hearing a lot of talk about taxes. I just want to know what the GOP thinks they're going to tell us if we go off into our Christmas break, respectively. You know, everyone goes off on their holiday and nothing is passed. I know they're going to tell us that, oh, well, we'll get to it right away when we come back. But what are we? what do we vote for again? What was this whole election about so far i mean sure it's it's an it's interesting isn't it that trump was the political novice trump was the guy without a political resume and if you're looking at positive action forget about the personalities and the rhetoric and the tone if you're looking at positive results from the perspective of a constitutional conservative you can talk about things that Trump has done. I know there are different branches of government. He has different powers than the Congress. But you can point to things that Trump has done and say, well, that's good. You know, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, good. Other federal judges, good. Enormous pullback in regulation from within the executive branch, good. There are, there are, there are tangible, real things that President Trump has accomplished. And now I ask you to do the same exercise for me with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and the, and the House and the Senate, respectively. What, what have you got for me? Well, what's the, you know, Mitch McConnell working on things? You know, no, nothing. There's nothing. In fact, you could ask, what exactly, how is the country better off because of congressional action over the last nine months or so, or no, over the, let's say, yeah, let's say the last nine months. 
what what comes to mind? I'm sure we could find some stuff, but it's hard. Because of the sweeping immigration reform bill? Nope, that didn't happen. Because of the massive increase in uh, border security and and f- a funding for a border wall? Nope, that didn't happen. The repeal and replacement of Obamacare? We know that didn't happen. So I would just like I would just like to put it in in the proper context. I would like to manage our expectations going forward here. You see, the the problem with many members of the GOP when it comes to the conservative agenda is that they don't actually have a conservative agenda. They like to say they do because they want to get elected and they need votes from people who want to vote for conservatism. But when it comes to actually casting votes and making tough calls, they want to make sure they keep the donor class happy. They want to make sure that the the interests, business and otherwise, that write checks to keep them to keep their campaign going the next time around and to keep them in office, that they have a war chest to beat their rivals. That is um that is the primary consideration for them. It's look, it's it's disconcerting. I'm hoping they prove me wrong. Maybe Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan pull off some amazing stuff here. Maybe I am just being a little a little sour about this today. But I would ask you, how many times have I been wrong about Congress so far this year, everybody? How many times have I been like, yeah, they're going to get this done, and then they didn't? Mm. I'm I'm just saying, look you know, look at the record, right? It's and uh, I'm not I'm not thinking I'm going to be wrong on this one either. But uh, I want to talk to you about this verdict about the Benghazi mastermind. Tell you all about that when we come back. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. There is a verdict in now. Um, a U.S. jury found Ahmed Abu Qatala guilty on four of 18 charges related to his role in the 2012 terrorist attack on a U.S. on two U.S. compounds in Benghazi, Libya, that killed U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens and three Americans serving their country. Uh, there were Guilty counts that could lead to 10 to 60 years in prison for Catala. But what do we think about this and what does it all mean? We've got Chris Tonto Peranto on the line to weigh in. He's a former Army Ranger, uh, but he was there. He was part of the Annex security team that responded to the terrorist attack on the special mission compound in Benghazi, Libya on September 11th, 2012. Chris, great to have you. Thank you for making the time. Of course, it's good to talk to you again, Buck. A long time. I'm glad you're doing well, brother. Thank you, my friend. You too. So, so tell me, you know, what what do you think about this? Do you feel? I, I saw the CIA director yeah. said he called it a measure a measure of justice. Clearly, not uh, thrilled with what what came down as the verdict here. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I I don't see it in any, as any justice at all. I, and to be honest with you, I don't even know why we had a a terrorist being tried in a criminal court. Since when do terrorists deserve any sort of due process? Um, it, it's really just a mockery, a mockery of, of everything that, that we're serving for when we're fighting terrorists. And I'm sure right now all the terrorists are over there thinking, gosh, these nice Americans, I think we're just going to not attack anymore because you know what? They're not going to do anything to us anyway because they're so kind-hearted and empathetic. But all this did is just show weakness, as usual. And, and by doing a criminal trial for a terrorist, um, it's almost like it's a bad movie, brother. It's like satirical, and I, I, I'm not. As you can tell, I'm not real happy with it. Yeah, of I'm course. I'm trying to be nice about it. 
Uh, I'm nice about it. That's ridiculous. He, look, he wasn't found guilty of murder. He was found guilty. <laughs> I've got the charges right here. Abu Qatala was found yeah. guilty of conspiracy to provide material support and resources to terrorists resulting in death. Using, carrying, brandishing, and discharging a firearm during a crime of violence. I mean, that sounds like he robbed a 7-Eleven. And maliciously destroying and injuring dwellings and property and placing lives in jeopardy in the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Look, they're federal crimes, and, and you and I both know, Chris, that really any federal crime at the at the felony level, you can go to prison for quite a while. But this yeah. guy is not being held to account. I mean, the death penalty is off the table. He is not being held yeah. to account for murder. How do you how do you plan the how do you help a plan the attack or assist in the planning? You you are there, you are helping kill Americans, and then you're found not guilty of murder, and you're discharging weapons. How, how does that happen? I, I, it's it's a complete mockery. It was a political sideshow from the beginning. That's why I didn't take part. I didn't I didn't take part in the uh, in the trial because I said I said this is ridiculous. You, I'm not going to go on trial and be part of this circus show for a terrorist that either needs to be in Gitmo. And needs to be interrogated or just put to death, and that's how they should be. They're, they're terrorists. So, you, so, mil- I, so you know, military tribunal and or Gitmo, right? That's that would have been I, your preferred, I, or or the extraction team just putting a bullet in him. That would have been actually that would have been paramount. The, the SEAL team or Delta or the Rangers that went in there and got him, just put a bullet in him. And if that offends people out there, well, you know what? Go fight terrorists, and then tell me what you think about it after. But we're, that's honestly that's what should have happened. We're speaking to Chris Tonto Peranto, former our former Army Ranger and a member of the uh, Annex Security Team that was there uh, that night uh, in Benghazi on September eleventh, twenty twelve. Uh, Chris, tell me uh, about the. Uh, there's another part of this, right? I know that we're yeah. focused right now on the criminal trial of of the terrorist who was captured here. It took quite a while to get him, by the way, as you know. Yeah, uh, but then there's also there's so there's the accountability for the the terrorists, which is paramount. But then there's also the issue of accountability from within the chain of command for those who were in charge that night, notably the commander in chief in 2012, Barack Obama, and the Secretary of State yeah. Hillary Clinton. Uh, there will be no justice when it comes to that, will there, Chris? I think we should all no. just be prepared for that. I, I, we should be prepared for that. It doesn't mean we shouldn't stop fighting for starting fighting for the justice. Don't don't ever give up. Don't ever quit. Uh, karma always finds a way of rearing its head and 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 actually bringing people accountable if you stick with it. Um, Hillary, yeah, she is responsible. She needs to be held accountable. And she hid information. And she broke classified information rules and laws and national security laws. And I, I, I'm not going to stop fighting to, for justice to come and bring her in. Uh, same with Obama, but. It, does it look good? No, because we're in a political world and end up in the beltway there. They're held to a different standard. But uh, we still have to keep pushing for, for justice uh, for my, my teammates that died, that sacrificed themselves, and Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith, because uh, right now they're not getting the justice that they deserve for being out there and being patriots and fighting for this country. They're not. And uh, Tonto, I I read uh, earlier today, we're actually going to be talking about later in the show, about how the former intelligence community inspector general, the the legal guy who's supposed to be keeping an eye on all the legalities in the IC, says that what was in Hillary's email, he used terms like endangered lives, endangered sources. So, and I'm somebody coming from my side of it, the analytic side of it. I'm like, well, I'm reading between the lines, but I I know what that means. And, And that means that there was some really egregious stuff in her emails I, you know, I can't really get into on air what I would think it might be, but I, of course, I, I have my thoughts on it. I think it's worse. The point here is that I think it's worse than even a vast majority of the American people know because they have not been allowed to know. 
And I would also note that from from your perspective, and, and I'm trying to talk around the issue, and Chris, you know how it is, but yeah, from your perspective, there's still stuff about Benghazi that I know we can't talk about, and I know people who know exactly what was going on that night feel like if the American people knew the full truth, they would even be more angry. And, and that's that's the double standard because of people like yourself or myself. And hey, I, I got guess what, everybody out there. I got fired when we told the truth. I lost all my security clearances for doing the right thing. Where Hillary Clinton violated national security, gave up classified information, gave up time and place predictab- predictability of the ambassador, so they knew where to attack, and also, uh, also possibly, possibly, possibly helped terrorists to overthrow Basad, did all that, and here we are, and, and I'm the one that was being punished. And, you know, hey, that's fine. I knew that was going to happen. We told the truth because it's the beltway again. But you're seeing politicians, again, getting away scot-free, being above the law, not being held to the same standards that the rest of us assign our non-disclosure so we won't violate national security are held to. And that is wrong. And that's why I, I will never stop until I'm on my deathbed uh, trying to bring this, this, and she is evil, evil woman to justice. I will never stop. And I don't think the American people should stop asking questions and stop ever stop trying to bring her to justice as well, because she did. And, and she should have been on trial for the death just as much as Abu Katala. Chris Peranto is former Army Ranger and part of the annex security team from that night, that fateful night in Benghazi, Libya in 2012. Chris, thank you for your service. Thank you for uh, everything you're doing out there, man. Keep it up and come back anytime you want. Thanks, brother. Be safe, Buck. Talk to you soon, buddy. You too. Well, there you have it. You know, somebody who was who was there that night and uh, has been through the whole process, and I, I think that's it's so important for everyone to hear too. You know, I, I'm wrong in a sense when I say that there was no one held responsible on the uh, on the U.S. side for what happened that night in Benghazi. Because our, our government punished some of the heroes. You just heard it from Chris himself. Some of those who rushed towards the gunfire to try to save their fellow Americans in duress, they were punished. And it's a frustration for me. Uh, I, I remember, I've told you this before, when that attack happened, I was on air that night, and I, I knew a lot of what is known now, um, but couldn't, you know, just couldn't say anything. And just had to see, just had to be there and say, okay, you know, this is what, what what news reports have come in. I'm analyzing the news as it's reported. I'm giving it no additional context because I knew that there were there were security issues that have all since you know not all, but a lot a lot of that has since come out and is now public knowledge. Um, but I also know that there's more about Benghazi that we have not been allowed to know, and people who are very uh, who are much closer to the subject matter, shall we say, than I was. Um, people who were still in at the time wished that that information could be made public because the American people would be even more outraged about it. And, you know, it's too late for this now, but it, it very well may have if the press had dug a little deeper and tried a little less to shield the Obama administration from blame. It may have cost Obama, Obama the uh, reelection. It, it may have had some things come out and had it gone a different way. And that was why the whole Candy Crowley thing with Mitt Romney and all that was so important to them, because they knew, they knew 
that the narrative of a, of, a, of a kind of new style of Democrat presidency that could actually be trusted on terrorism instead of being blundering on terrorism, which is the truth of what the Obama administration was doing. I know Osama bin Laden, great. There was a lot of other stuff that over the course of eight years was completely mishandled. And killing bin Laden didn't end al-Qaeda, didn't stop the jihadist threat, and it was the result of U.S. special operations and the intelligence community. It's not like, you know, I joke around about how Brian Williams acts like he's the guy repelling out of the helicopter. You know, Obama took more than his fair share of victory laps for the whole bin Laden situation. Anyway, it's it's frustrating. Uh, it is frustrating. And, and I can imagine for those who you know, there's still people. Well, we lost we lost four of our own that night in Benghazi, but also. There were some who were grievously wounded, and uh, a measure, uh, well, a measure is what the CIA director says we got, a full measure of justice, real justice, uh, with Katala being punished for murders that were committed at his behest. That would seem to be the, the least we could uh, we could want after a proceeding like this. But look, it's, it's true in any case where there's a jury involved. You put it before a jury, you are rolling the dice. It's just the way it is. And he's going to jail for for a few decades for sure. Uh, but should have been a lot more. All right, we're going to talk about, I mean, perhaps the biggest story today, honestly, is North Korea and this missile launch. We will dive into it together. Uh, this is some scary stuff. Stay with me and we'll talk about it. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. North Korea fires an intercontinental ballistic missile that it is now reported could put the uh, U.S. capital, Washington, D.C. itself, could now be in range. This was the first test in more than two months. And it dashes any hopes that the Kim regime was hoping to begin a constructive dialogue with either the U.S. or more likely an intermediary about how to step down from the current nuclear brinksmanship. Uh, This is very troubling. Let me just give you some of the specifications of what we know about the missile launch as uh, as of airtime right now. Quote, the missile, which launched early Wednesday, traveled some 620 miles and reached a height, this is the big point here, of about 2,800 miles before landing off the coast of Japan and flew for a total of 54 minutes. This suggested that it had been fired almost straight up on a lofted trajectory similar to North Korea's two previous intercontinental ballistic missile tests. The Pentagon said that the projectile did indeed appear to be an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, and this is what Secretary of State Mattis, I'm sorry, Secretary of Defense Mattis had to say about this earlier today. Senator, 
Mr. Speaker, a little over two and a half hours ago, North Korea launched uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile. <clears throat> uh, it went higher, frankly, than any previous shot they've taken. It's a research and development effort on their part to continue building ballistic missiles that could threaten uh, everywhere in the world, basically. And uh, in response, the South Koreans have fired some pinpoint missiles out into the water to make certain North Korea understands that uh, they could be taken under fire by our ally. But the bottom line is it's a continued effort to build a threat, serve a ballistic missile threat that uh, endangers world peace, regional peace, and certainly the United States. Yeah, this is a major concern should be a major concern for anybody who is paying attention to national security. Um, and, and this is getting the world's attention here. Now, the, the Trump administration has been on this. And I should note that this was handed off to this White House after decades of failure. North Korea has been a foreign policy challenge of bipartisan failure, stretching back to the Clinton era. Stretching back to Kim Jong-il. Forget about Kim Jong-un. Uh, the the father of the current despot of Pyongyang. Uh, they have not figured out how to handle this problem. Now, President Trump assures us and assured us earlier today that, in fact, they will figure this out and it will all be okay. Some of you have reported a missile was launched a little while ago from North Korea, I will only tell you that we will take care of it. We have General Mattis in the room with us, and uh, we've had a long discussion on it. It is a situation that we will handle. A situation that they will handle. Okay. Uh, I Look, the president, part of his job here is to reassure the American people because this is this could rattle some of us, right? Understandably, when you now have the craziest regime in the world that the more you know about it, the scarier it is, that it may have the capacity to, to hit any U.S. city with a nuclear weapon, that, that might keep some people up late at night. Now, that's, that is a concern. And then, then you get into, well, would they risk it? Would they, in fact, try to hit us? I, I think the answer is no, but you don't really want to live in a world where you're worried about finding out, right? That's the problem. And Trump says that they will figure this out. But when I heard from the, a White House senior official earlier today on this, I have to tell you, I was not encouraged. Now, there may be there. I'm sure there are plans. I don't know about Look, like I said, I've been out of the game for a while, um, but they're not telling me anything that I haven't heard before. And in fact, this was not confidence inspiring. Here's uh, I don't know, some senior, uh, some he looks like the sort of quintessential senior White House official on national security. I forget the guy's name, but uh, he, he was speaking about it with Brett Michael Anton. Thank you. Speaking about it with uh, Brett Bear earlier. Here's, here's what he had to say. 
North Korea is already the most sanctioned country in the world. Is anything the UN Security Council can do that somehow ratchets it up, ratchets it up further than the U.S. and the UN have already done? Well, we got we did pass uh, two resolutions already this year. We're always looking at new ways to apply this pressure, whether that be through the Security Council, whether it be obviously unilaterally by the United States alone, or and in multilateral combinations. We know that there are other countries closer to the border of North Korea that have much more leverage than the United States does. We don't have diplomatic relations. We don't really have economic ties. Obviously, we want all the nations of the world to do more. Ultimately, that means Russia and China at the utmost, which have the, the, the greatest amount of economic ties and, um, and, and leverage over North Korea. We've seen progress. The president's encouraged by the progress he's seen, especially from the Chinese government over the course of this year. I think we don't believe there's any country on earth that has exhausted all of its alternatives. So we think everybody can do more, but we're encouraged by the progress and we're going to be pushing for more progress. But today was dangerous. Anytime okay. so, they yeah, do this, it's dangerous. Of, yeah, but progress, president's done some stuff, lots of progress. Uh, not not really, you know, to say that today, I mean, I, I, what, what really is the progress? Look, I'm just keeping it real, everybody. I know, right? This is, a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, Trump's got this and the administration. This is a, a very, a very tough nut to crack. This is not easy. Because here's the North Korean point of view. There is nothing but benefit from them, for them, for their regime to be able to threaten us with a with a nuclear hit, with a nuclear strike. Their regime that means the regime's going nowhere. And if they can build, keep in mind, they, they're building more nukes, right? They put together a nuclear arsenal of I don't know, who knows, if you know, a few hundred weapons that we're we actually believe could hit us anywhere in the US. They're not worried about any invasion or military strike or anything anymore. I mean, I see there's a piece up by uh, by Mark uh, uh, Mark Thiessen on the FoxNews.com where he's saying that Trump, uh, unless I'm misreading this, you know, Thiessen, here's what it says. President should take out the site where North Korea just launched an ICBM. Um, that's a really good way to start a war. Firing missiles at North Korea to blow up a nuclear weapon site that they've just fired a missile from. I mean, if, if you want to start a war, I mean, if that's what you think the answer is here, and I don't mean that as, as a completely rhetorical statement, right? If you want to start a war, I mean, maybe people do think that we, we need to actually strike. But don't think you're going to get away with just hitting one missile site and North Korea is going to say, yeah, you know, we didn't need that one. North Korea has a tremendous chemical weapons program. We have no idea, really, what their biological weapons program may be. Uh, we, we don't, you know, we, a lot of assumptions made. I will remind everybody, I come from the CIA's analytic office of Iraq. Mistakes can be made. We don't know as much as we think we know. And if there is a country that has been cut off from the uh, the decision makers in our government knowing what's really happening there. Trust me, North Korea is high on that list. I, I don't have answers for you. I just would note that I've told you all along that this isn't going to work. The incentives for North Korea still are to continue its belligerent behavior. Why would it? Why would it give up? Because of economic pressure, they'll find some. They'll find some way to make up for the shortfalls. The people already live in abject misery, despair, and slavery. We think uh, by, by cutting off foreign currency reserves, there's going to be what? 
revolution. The people at the top of the North Korean power pyramid, they've got plenty of food or they've got food. They're not going to turn on Kim Jong-un. As I've been saying, the more you learn about North Korea, the more you realize that this is not a this is not a normal country. This is not a, a place of 20 some odd million people. I think it's roughly 30 uh, that has a conception of reality that aligns with ours at all. They think that we are trying to eradicate them, by the way. That's North Korean propaganda that we are just waiting. You know, we we have a flotilla. You know, we'll send out a fleet with a carrier and we'll say, see, we're showing strength. Behave, North Korea. Internally, in North Korea, they're telling their people that we're just that the only thing stopping the U.S. military from coming in like the, uh, you know, invading Huns is Kim Jong Un and the North Korean military and that we want to come in and destroy the whole country and kill everybody. And that is so up, that is so apart from reality to us that it's hard to take it seriously. But this is a country where people don't have access to any outside sources of information. I mean, yeah, I know there's been there's been some uh, bleed over of South Korean DVDs and Chinese DVDs and people, you know, there's yeah, I know it's not as it's not a hermetically sealed country. There are some contacts with the outside world, but it's just not. Uh, it's not a, a situation that can be easily read by our leadership. And this whole, oh, we're going to pressure China. Uh, we're pressure China to do what? Do, do people really think that, that China is calling the shots in North Korea? The answer is no. Um, you know, the answer is no. You know, we can't get Mexico to build a wall, but we're going to get China to do what in North Korea? Well, what do we really think is going to shut it off? We want a blockade. Is that the answer? We're going to start. I mean, North Korea is already partially starving. We're going to starve it even more. I, I know there are, people are going to go on TV. They say, well, you know, multilateral, a lot of things like multilateralism and strategery and, you know, all this other stuff. You're going to notice when you hear people talking about this, they will not they will not tell you anything you really don't already know about North Korea. Overwhelmingly on TV, that's what you'll see. And then it just just turns into, well, am, am I pushing for a positive perception of how Trump is handling this or a negative perception of how Trump is handling this. It just it's just yet another effort, another exhibition of partisanship. It's almost like North Korea becomes irrelevant in the public discussion of this. You'll see it tonight. You'll see it on on all kinds of shows. You'll see this on, uh, on in the commentary about it. But as I've been saying to you, there are lessons that dictators can draw from the last couple of decades, you know, in a post 9-11 world, for example. And one of the lessons is if you got nukes, you're not going anywhere. If you don't have nukes, your days may be numbered. And they saw what happened to Gaddafi. And I can't even describe what really happened to Gaddafi on air on this radio show, because I know there are kids listening. But that that's, uh, you know, the Assad regime, they they paid attention to what happened to Gaddafi and Saddam. They're like, nope. There is no brutality. There is no viciousness that the Assad regime would not do to avoid that fate. They don't care. They don't care how many people they kill, rape, murder, pillage, you name it. Kim Jong-un? Even worse. Even worse. We got people now who, 
you know, I, I don't I, look. I, I don't know Mark Thiessen. He might be really good on some stuff, but yeah, the president should respond by firing a, by by blowing up part of North Korea. I mean, if I lived in Seoul, the capital of South Korea, I'd be pretty annoyed that an American thought that the best way to go here. Remember, North Korea has been firing missiles. It's we we don't like it. It's it's belligerent. It'll, haven't fired a missile at us yet. Haven't killed any Americans with any of this. If we blow up a North Korean military facility. You know, that's a first strike situation. We don't know how that's going to go. I, I, I'm this is concerning. Because I know that, you know, part of the the appeal of Trumpism is to deal with things as they uh, to deal with things full force straight on. Right. Not to dance around the edges and talk about stuff and lots of meetings and lattes and everything else, but to actually, what is the problem? State the problem, address the problem. I'm trying to do that with you right now in North Korea. What people are talking about right now who are pretending they know is wrong. It will not work. Unless you think that we need to just roll the dice. If things are so dire, we need to roll the dice. That's a dangerous place to be when you're talking about the most totalitarian nation state to really have ever existed. Uh, I, I am very, very concerned. Uh, we'll, we will see how this plays out. It, Trump says he's got it. I don't know. Do you think he's got it? 844-900-2825. Uh, I'll be back with more. Stay with me. Just a note, team, that I will be on uh, Fox News tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern. I believe right around the top of the show. So right around, you know, maybe 11.05-ish. Uh, talking about North Korea, this missile launch, what it means. And, um, you know, that will be, yeah, that will be an opportunity to discuss what I've been talking to you about here. I'm going to really think about I, I'd like to do more than just say what's not going to work, um, which is the continuation of what we've already seen, but I don't know exactly what will work. So I um, please do join me, though, if you can. Join me if you can. Um, I also saw the James O'Keefe video. It's the total. Uh, I saw the James O'Keefe video, and oh, uh, oh boy, uh, what is there to say about this? Uh, you know, I, I I've had James on the show before. I think he's done uh, he's done some very interesting work in the past. I know he's a anyone who's going to be unearthing the truth about the left and progressives is going to be called controversial, and they're going to go after him. Was was o, was O'Keefe involved though with the Center for Medical Progress with the uh, videos of the abortion? Because that was that was gut wrenching, but profound. Uh, undercover journalism of of those abortion clinics and those abortion uh, clinic uh, employees. I don't, I can't remember. If, I think that was actually that wasn't O'Keefe's unit though. I think that was a uh, a different the Center for Medical Progress. That was a different group. I can't remember if there were ties. But here's what happened with O'Keefe. If you didn't see it, he tried to run a a uh, a fake source into the Washington Post on the uh, Roy Moore issue, and they videotaped the encounter with the with the fake source. And the, the point of this was to show that anybody could concoct a story in the Washington Post would run with it, I assume. And the Washington Post uh, figured out what was going on after multiple meetings, and they sniffed out the, they, they sniffed out the, 
the scheme. And it's all on video, and it does not look good. In fact, let's just be honest about it. It's a strong day for the Washington Post. Uh, it looks like they do their source vetting very seriously. And, you know, th- this is where we get into the, the discussion about what media bias really is. Uh, they're not running with entirely false news stories all the time. Uh, they're not running. It, it, this is and look, I've worked in this this area now for seven years and I was a, an Intel analyst for almost what six or seven years before that. But I've been a media you know, a media junkie my whole life, okay, or as long as I can remember. The real bias is in what they choose to not cover and in how they cover things, but they can't just entirely make stuff up, right? There is a difference between what you'll see in, like, the National Enquirer, you know, the the front page of the National Enquirer and the Washington Post. Let's not get too crazy with the fake news thing. I'm not saying they never, that the Washington Post and the New York Times never lies. I'm just saying... They, what they do, the way that they portray things and the way that they are biased is, in one, what they choose to cover at all or not to cover at all, the amount of coverage they do, which has a profound effect on how people view different subjects and subject matter, and then it's in the context and the words and the descriptions, and but it's not generally in the wholesale falsification of a story or of the sources for the story. So I, I just think this was this O'Keefe venture was uh, obviously ill-fated and uh, ill-advised. Willing to be public can change things. I mean, we all talked about for years. A little bit at a time. Right, you know, don't get in the elevator with him. You know, and the whole, every female in the press corps knew that, right? Don't get in the elevator with him. Now people are saying it out loud. And I think that does make it. That is a change. Okay, thanks very much. So that was a journalist, uh, Roberts, right? What's her name? Um, Kokoki Roberts. She was saying about uh, Conyers, Representative Conyers, that everybody knew. Oh, can you th- think about this for a second, right? You know, you're you you're listening to my radio show. If I was walking around the office and everybody's like, "Well, you know, Buck's a great guy," but everybody knew, you know, don't get into the elevator with that guy. I, I would I would be very ashamed <laughs> if that were my reputation. Don't get into an elevator with him because he might grab you. That's what this was. Now that it's all out about Conyers, now that another woman has come forward and claimed uh, harassment. Uh, now that that's going on, we're not, we're treated to the to to the actual truth that this was known. This has been known all along that Conyers was 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 grabby with women, and and worse. Um, I I I have to note that it is you have to look really hard. I mean, you have to do multiple Google searches and and dig in to uh, information. That is presented in different stories and really go down to find out what Conyers is accused of, because it's it's some pretty, pretty aggressive, pretty graphic stuff. It's not Weinstein level criminality, but it's it's real sexual harassment. It's fireable stuff for sure. But here we are. Now they'll tell the truth. You know, now it'll say that, you know, it was known that he was. He was, uh, how, how was that never reported on? Oh, that's right. He's an icon, you see. Too important to the Democrat cause to just 
to allow the, the facts and the reality of his conduct to get in the way. He was, a, he was an icon. Oh, I see. And still is for them. By the way, Senator Ron Wyden um, has also come to the defense of a Democrat here. He's a Democrat. Here's what he said about Al Franken. What do you make of the argument um, by some liberal columnists um, that by not demanding that Franken and Congressman John Conyers, uh, who has been accused by at least two staffers of sexual harassment, uh, by not demanding that they step down, Democrats are ceding any high ground on this sexual harassment uh, issue? Well, with respect to Senator Franken, these are obviously serious uh, allegations. He's called for an ethics uh, inquiry. I think that's appropriate, and I want to see the results. But you don't think he needs to step down? As of now, I think it's appropriate that there be an ethics inquiry. An ethics inquiry. Oh, that whole moment of uh, of recognition among the Democrats that sexual harassment was a zero tolerance. It didn't last very long, did it? Didn't didn't stay around for all that long, as I was telling you yesterday. No surprise there. Um, but this will, uh, I think eventually, uh, this will just fade away. I, I, I have to say, I'm, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm the, br- the bringer of cynical viewpoints today. But the cultures of, you know, the, the culture of, a, of one company or another or of institutions, they're, they're already subject to all kinds of laws and restrictions. So it has to change because the people inside them change. And the basis for all of this is just manners and decent conduct and and consideration for your fellow human beings, right? Considerations for your coworkers or just for somebody else as a person, not to treat them like an object or property in the context of somebody that you can uh, leverage your professional position in order to, you know, physically uh, use for your own purposes. I mean, this is... This is it's really not that complicated when you get down to it, but it's also not really about this is not about being truthful and honest, I think, in the, over the long term about any of this. This will very quickly devolve into in, into the partisan witch hunt. It's just a question of when and they're they're holding back on this until that or we're, we're all holding our breath waiting to see when that becomes uh, that becomes the case. And we have been here before. The uh, sexual harassment that they're talking about here, the sexual harassment allegations, uh, this is not new. The laws are already in place. There already have been lots of discussions about this. And as I've said to you, I mean, my my experience, my experience with this, that sounds like a really bad way to start this conversation. But my experience in a professional workplace in the federal government with this was that uh, you did not. You did not want to be caught up even as a witness in a sexual harassment case. You didn't want to have to talk about it. You didn't. The, the way that it works, I can tell you, in some government organizations is that you can refuse to testify even as a witness, not not in your own defense. You can refuse. What ends up happening is they'll bring you in. They'll say, did you hear this? Did so-and-so say this? And then you're in the position where you can you can make the decision whether you're going to tell or you're going to tattle depends how egregious it is right i mean if it's really bad stuff probably feel fine about it. but you know did you hear that that inappropriate joke that someone made well you're not aware of who else says that you were in the room right i mean this is, it's it's almost like uh, it's treated like a criminal inquiry 
and you're not under oath in the sense that you're not going to go to prison or anything for perjury. But the way it is in some government organizations is if you lie, you're fired. So for me to look at how and then no questions asked, by the way, if you're caught in a lie, it doesn't even matter if it's a small lie, you, you can be immediately terminated. And even a uh, even a relatively minor lie or transgression in that process. And, you know, it's hard. I'm somebody who, you know, I, I applied to Davidson College, I remember, for school, and they have an honor code there, which I'm fine with in, in principle. Uh, but they had I, I didn't end up going to the school, but they had an honor code that said that, you know, you will not I forget what the specifics are. I think UVA maybe still has a has the same code or something like it. But, you know, you will not lie, cheat or steal and you will report anyone who does so. Mm, I'm I'm not a I'm not a report anyone who does so unless, you know, unless I think something really needs to be. I, I maintain that discretion for myself, you know. I don't, I don't like to snitch. Uh, just it's not it's not who I am. It's not how I do things. And I did not like that concept of you have to if somebody like if somebody else cheats on an exam and you see it, you have to turn them in or else you are treated as equally guilty. Which, yeah, Tyrone's not. A, he knows this is the way that it works at some of these schools and in the federal government when it came to sexual harassment. If you were asked about, did so-and-so say this? You weren't allowed to say, look, it's not my business. It's not my whatever. You know, did you think that somebody was being a little appropriate? You know, you have to answer. And you may be talking about your friends. You may be talking about people that you think 99% of the time are totally within the bounds, you know, just made a mistake. But now you're in a position where do you lie or and possibly jeopardize your job, never mind tell a lie, or do you throw somebody under the bus that you think maybe is getting a rough a rough deal. Uh, you know, it's that was my experience. So this I mean, it's it's so many it's so many universes away uh from what we've seen and been told about a, particularly in Hollywood but also in terms of the way that it's functioning for Congress. I mean, and it's no surprise that Congress creates this whole separate uh, reporting for itself or, or this reporting mechanism that makes sure that nobody is really going to be held accountable for it. Uh, there was somebody else, I can't remember off the top of my head who it was, but, uh, oh yeah, Grijalva, uh, Grijalva, his office paid out, this is from the Hill, his office paid out 48000 in a workplace settlement. But now we're going to start to get some of these cases that come out where, was it covering up real abuse or was it... Uh, was it covering up real abuse or was this just paying somebody off because it's easier to make it go away? Office place sexual harassment in the 90s, people began to say, was the uh, was the whiplash injury of the office place, meaning that there were a lot of frivolous lawsuits that were brought. Now, I, you can tell me that there's been a uh, massive change in that since then. Fine. But like I was saying, this is I don't think this is going to get. There's not going to be uh, there's not going to be anything that comes out of this over the long term. I think that's all that different. I don't maybe I'm wrong, but this will right now it's very politically sensitive right now. Victims finally have the upper hand over their abusers, but I doubt it will last because the way it stops is that once we see that it is used for a political hit, when it is clearly a political targeting, then people will just say, well, we can't we're back to. Maybe where we should be, which is every individual case should be judged as an individual case. 
You know, as Nancy Pelosi said, due process and all that, right? All right, uh, we're going to talk about. I want to talk about the media, and then also in the next hour, I've got much more coming your way. Stay with me. What's the danger in your view of the president, as we saw over the weekend, um, declaring a network, in this case CNN International, uh, to be uh, fake and telling a global off, uh, uh, audience the same thing, and um, uh, perhaps uh, deciding to give a trophy to the network of his choosing that's been um, reporting, giving out the most fake news? What he did is he endangered, certainly, uh, CNN journalists, all journalists, uh, operating in dangerous areas and autocratic areas. And it's another assault in, in spirit on the concept of a free press, on the spirit of the First Amendment. These are the behaviors of an autocrat. These are the behaviors of an autocrat. Yeah, right. Steve Schmidt of, uh, what was that, MSNBC. You had Brian Williams who uh, took a few moments out from his busy schedule of uh, rappelling off of roofs with the SEAL Team 6 in undisclosed locations around the world. You know, and by the way, Brian Williams, the SEALs, they all carry weapons. Brian Williams just needs his hands. He's that good. Uh, he took time off from, from that to get all upset and, and, and really have to pull up the ambulance on how Trump says that CNN International is fake news or it's it's bad for the country or whatever. And then they bring out Steve Schmidt, whom all you really need to know, like, I don't know Steve Schmidt. He could be a really nice guy. Uh, he says a lot of, I think, very uh, boneheaded things on TV, but, you know, he might be a nice guy. All you have to know is that he's the one Republican in the movie Game Change that, at least that I can recall, that they don't make look like a complete and utter buffoon and and an unethical uh, slug. And he was played by Woody Harrelson in that movie. And, and so that's all you have to know, because if the left likes you, there's a problem. Right? This is something that I uh, keep in mind. The, the people that the mainstream media hate the most on the right are a lot of the best people. <laughs> so they And they make no distinctions between those who are trying to, in good faith, be centrist or be a little more accommodating to alternate points of view. And those who are just like, this is a street fight. We've got to win, right? Whether you're Romney or Bannon, the left wants to destroy you. Uh, so with someone like Steve Schmidt, who is a quote Republican, uh, then you have the same, the same thing you always have, which is if you want to be a Republican on MSNBC, your job is to go on there and talk about how bad Trump and all the other Republicans are. It's the one way you can get immediate uh, job security over there but the the whole press corps seems really upset over this whole this this trump uh, situation um for example you have uh, cnn's jake tapper who is just going after trump the president does not care for us reporting these facts and it seems like he does not want you to believe these facts the president said he wanted to give an award based on which network is the most, quote, dishonest, corrupt, and or distorted. But his problems with journalism seem to be rooted in the exact opposite. He hates that which is honest and ethical and precise. Ask yourself, why might that be? So now I would like to ask Jake Tapper a question, um, which will never happen because Jake Tapper will, would have an endless uh, an endless uh, clown cars worth of the weakest Republican 
debate opponents possible on his show over the course of the campaign. And, and, and I was I was never asked or welcome on Jake's show, even when I was a an employee of CNN, um, which go and look at some of the lineups they've had and tell me, OK, was this a gravitas issue or is this just a they know that Buck will light them up on their own show issue? You can make your own calls about that. But Jake Tapper saying that Trump hates that which is ethical and honest. I would just want someone to ask Tapper. What exactly does CNN think it is? Does CNN reject that it is a Democrat network that's pretending to be a centrist, unbiased, journalistic enterprise? Because if he can't answer that question, honestly, nothing else after that really matters, right? If we were to ask Jake Tapper, whose brand at CNN is, he's at least the, he's the the least unreasonably partisan of their major anchors. I think that's fair to say. That's his brand. Not that he's nonpartisan. He's the least unreasonably partisan of the hyperpartisan anchors at CNN. And if someone were to ask him the question, do you think that CNN is left-leaning, he would go into, and I, I, I guarantee it, some, you know, we have many journalists who are very uh, ethical and rigorous standards and gold standard in journalism and blah, blah, blah. But are you are you always taking a Democrat point of view and do, do your producers and your anchors and your shows favor a Democrat left narrative? Jake Tapper, what's the answer to that question? They would say no. I couldn't believe it when I was at CNN. How many people would look at me like I was crazy when I'd say, well, we all know that this is you guys are just MSNBC without the honesty. Do you not? Are you unaware of that? You, you don't get that. And they also seem not to grasp. That given that fundamental disconnect with reality that they have at CNN, given that they don't seem to understand that all the rest of us who don't buy into their propaganda see that they are, in fact, and look, it's fine to be a Democrat network. It's fine to be a left of center cable. I I have no problem with that in, in concept. But just be honest about it. And also don't pretend that the president doesn't also have First Amendment rights. President's allowed to say he doesn't like any network he likes. It doesn't mean that he's trying to help autocrats. It doesn't mean that he's helping hostile foreign governments. I mean, all this stuff. And notice how CNN always runs to like international opinion and, you know, the international community. No such thing really as the international community. It's largely a fiction of people who use the term. But until they can say, until they can admit that assuming their anchors voted, at CNN, not a single anchor on that network. They'll never tell you they voted for, of course. This is how they get around this. But I can tell you not a single one voted for Trump. Not one. And they're going to tell us all that it's all about truth and honesty and you know they revile this term fake news. It's just completely and utterly laughable that they can't be forthright with the American people. Oh, wow. I, by the way, I just saw a CNN panel. I think there were like 30 people on the screen at one time. I was like, whoa, whoa. And by the way, one of them, you've got Wolf Blitzer talking to uh, before, uh, what was this guy's name earlier today? Oh, it doesn't matter. All these anchors are Democrats. They're all left. And yet they pretend that they're not. I just, and they think there's honesty in that. They think that there's a, a brand to be salvaged. Uh, with the pretense of, oh, no, we are not, in fact, partisan journalists. We're something else. No, they are very much.
part of the hashtag resistance. That is their brand now. It is why I left CNN. I could not stand to deal with the dishonesty anymore. But Jake Tapper wants to give lectures on honesty. Fair enough. All right, we'll be back. Talk about the Hillary email situation. Some interesting updates on that. Stay with me. There was an effort on the certainly on the part of the campaign to mislead people into thinking that there was nothing to see here. Told that we would be the first two to be fired uh, with her administration. That uh, that was definitely going to happen. Is that how it's supposed to be? No, I was in this context a whistleblower. I was explaining to Congress. I was doing exactly what they had expected me to do. And all of a sudden I was the enemy. That is uh, from a new report out. And that was Charles McCullough, who was the intelligence uh, watchdog for or the former intelligence community inspector General Charles McCullough III, and he was uh, saying last night on Fox that he knew that there would be consequences if, in fact, he did not play ball with the Hillary administration. Uh, There are a bunch of thoughts I want to share with you on this, Uh, so I'm going to try to get as many of them in in a reasonable time frame here as I can, Uh, because we all know that the fix was in for Hillary, right? We knew that Comey was... When I say we knew, it was not surprising to find out that Comey was already drafting a letter that would say there'd be no charges filed against Hillary. I knew all along that it did not matter what was in those emails, how egregious it was. Hillary Clinton was not in an election year when she was the Democrat nominee for president. She was not going to face criminal charges for this. And this is yet another data point that supports that point of view. This shows us that Charles McCullough coming out here to say that uh, he was threatened with retribution by Hillary allies just lets us all know that, as I've said to you many times before, the fix was in. No question about it. The fix was in here. And I would note that also in this interview, he went on to say that because this was a very uh, this was a very contentious part of the whole debate. The, the way the Hillary people kept changing the storyline on this tells you a lot. But originally they were saying there was no classified. Then there was nothing marked classified. Then there was nothing marked classified that was that big a deal, even though it was marked classified. The only stop after that is you had incredibly sensitive stuff in your unclassified email, which is a huge violation of security protocols and criminal law. And they want us to believe that it never got to that point. But here's what this report in Fox said about all this. As one of the few people who viewed the uh, the 22 top secret Clinton emails deemed too classified to release under any circumstances, there was a very good reason to withhold those emails. There would have been harm to national security, McCullough said. He went further to tell Fox News that sources and methods Lives and operations could be put at risk. Some, and this is from the Fox P, some of those email exchanges contained special access program information characterized by Intel experts as, quote, above top secret. Now, I at one point had a TS clearance and know what they mean by above top secret. Uh, I... Read this in for you have only two options here. And this is from the inspector general, the person 
who is, in a sense, the intelligence, the classified information ombudsman of the intelligence community. Somebody who really knows this stuff backwards and forwards. And he's saying that sources, methods, lives and operations put at risk. That's setting off major alarm bells for me because I know the kind of information that he would have to be referring to. There's only two options here. Either Hillary was putting stuff in those emails that, as was just said, could have put lives at risk. That's not, you know, an analytic assessment that's classified at the lowest level, you know, continued instability in the Middle East is likely. You know, sometimes those of you who've had a clearance know that you know, sometimes there's stuff that's classified. That you're like, I mean, does that really need to be classified? And the answer is no. There's a lot of overclassification. It's just a reality. Anybody who's worked in national security and held a clearance knows that. But only with only at a certain level, right? I mean, it, you're you're not stuff is not marked super super duper secret squirrel that is not secret at all, right? I mean, it's only at the very lowest level usually that you'll see stuff. You're like, well, is that really classified or or not, or should that be classified or not? I mean, and there is no way that, as Fox puts it here, special access program information should have under any circumstances whatsoever made it into Hillary's emails. And uh, this is where I would tell you that I think the administration should release, because people like me, I, I've never, I don't know what was in those emails. And I, I haven't had a clearance in years and years now, right? So I can't see it. I don't know. I'm I'm out of the game, which is great, because it means that I can speak very freely with all of you. I've been out of the game now for, for years, but out of the Intel game. Uh, but... If they even released redacted versions of the Hillary emails, I could tell from the context how serious the information is that we're talking about here. And and we should know. We should know. Because if what you know either this guy's lying or Hillary got away with a security breach that would have sent any other person in this country, unless they also were a super powerful Democrat, to prison. Really, that's what this that's what the former inspector general of the intelligence community is saying here to Fox News. He also I mean, in case you weren't sure enough, I know that this is a story that's been going on for a long time. There's a lot of but this is important because we're getting more of the information now. Just like as I've been telling you, we would do a and we'll do it tomorrow. Guys, remind me the Clinton Foundation. Remember, I sent you with the I was almost exactly right with my prediction about how the Clinton Foundation would turn out this year because the numbers are in. The fiscal year ended, and now we know what the donations were. So we'll, we'll return to that tomorrow. Sometimes it takes a bit of time before I can have the follow-up information to, to bring you the, you know, the so what. You know, the, the, did this really happen? Is this really, was I right about all of this? And in any case, in any event... Here we are now um, with the email situation and Hillary and seeing that there was political pressure brought to bear. They promised us that that was not the case. They, they swore all over the place. Oh, no, there's, you know, it was an honest process. Comey is America's greatest Boy Scout. You know, he's the super G man. Can trust him with anything until he did something bad to Hillary. Then he was the worst person ever. That's what the media said. They flipped on that real fast. But this former intelligence community inspector general James, I'm sorry, Charles uh, McCullough says 
quote, I was told by members of Congress, be careful. You are losing your credibility. You need to be careful. There are people out to get you. So, uh, that's, that's a pretty clear, that's a pretty clear, uh, indicator, isn't it? That Congress was like, look, Hillary's going to be the president. That also tells you something very important that everything that was happening around the email investigation was premised under, we can make this all go away. Think about how certain they were that Trump was going to win. Think about how sure they were that all of Hillary's horses and all of Hillary's men would be there to put the Hillary administration back together again once she won. And it would all be fine because they'd be in power and they could, you know, and, and it would be a long, a long forgotten memory that Hillary had at any point in time ever been involved in this scandal. So that also means that there was it was likely that they would be even more brazen in their efforts to shut this whole thing down because they thought there would be no consequences for those efforts. And in fact, there would be rewards for those who were covering for Hillary with the emails and there would be punishment for those who were trying to find the truth. There would be punishment for those who were upholding their oath to uh, the American people and the Constitution. That's. That's the reality of the whole Hillary email investigation. So the truth matters just as, a, as, a, as an overall concept, right? We, we want to know the truth. And then it also is important for all of us to look at this and, and keep analyzing and searching for more information on this because the media has been telling us that you know, Trump is he's destroying all these government institutions and he's so terrible and he's so awful. And I think you can argue I mean, the Clintons were a wrecking ball. When it comes to uh, any sense of bipartisan fair play in government institutions, I think they were a wrecking ball to uh, political integrity. I think that they completely blew apart any notion that there was such a thing as truth in politics that mattered. And so that's why all, all the, the lectures and the, and the harangues from the left about Trump for so many of us, it just just doesn't doesn't land. We, we don't care. We don't care how, how annoyed they are about Trump's verbiage. We don't care how annoyed they are about the rough edges of the Trump administration because Clinton was supposed to be our next president and it doesn't get any worse than the Clintons. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about Elizabeth Warren. Speaking of, can it get any worse? Talk about Elizabeth Warren in a few minutes. Stay with me. President Trump couldn't even make it through a ceremony to honor these men without throwing in a racial slur. You know, he thinks that somehow he's going to shut me up with that. And it's just not going to happen. You know, (laughs) that uh, Elizabeth Warren still manages to say anything about this stuff without groans from from everyone well in the media and and anyone who hears it is pretty astonishing Uh, this is somebody who engaged in racial fraud and now she's going to claim that it is a a racial slur um look i'm i'm familiar with what would be considered a a racial slur for native americans there there are a few that we all know um but referring to 
Elizabeth Warren as a very uh, prominent Native American, when we all know she's not Native American at all, is a slight against Warren. It's not a racial slur. It's not intended as a racial slur. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can actually have uh, somebody else weigh in on this one. The Mooch. So what does that have to do with that? calling her Pocahontas? Well, I, I, I think that she's been nasty to him, and he's been uh, concurrently nasty to her. So you've been victims of racial slurring uh, because of your ethnic heritage. So have I. Uh, what do you do in a situation like that? This is what I do. Okay? See that? And that's what you do. And you have to do that. And at the end of the day, I think at the end, we're, we're getting a little bit too micromanaging with each other's languages and the whole political uh, correctness movement. I think most people are tired with it. You, you are, I am. Maybe you're not. I don't know. You work at CNN. You know, there's, a, there's, there's different speeds for the mooch. That's Anthony Scaramucci, uh, formerly, formerly White House Communications director, formerly somebody who uh, was supposed to be a, a pretty senior administration figure. I, I remember when I first met him and he was running the or was one of the top people in the transition. And I, I mean, my, my jaw hit the ground. I was like, so this, this guy, he's running Trump's transition team. OK. And then he had that incredible, uh, I don't know if you call it a fall from grace or uh, belly flop from the high board, a high dive. Uh, I, I don't know, but he didn't last very long in DC at all. But I will note that his his when he goes into the more uh, chilled out version of Scaramucci, which he, you got there on the phone. I, they let him call in to the CNN morning show. Why I I don't really know. Why wasn't that Chris Cuomo show or yeah? Oh, he was in studio. Oh, it sounded like he was on the phone again. Because remember, he had that epic phoner where he just went on and on with Cuomo but yeah they'd like to have him over at CNN I I wonder why um you know at some point we're gonna have to understand uh, we're gonna have to come together and agree that if you were in DC if you're in the White House for like a month or maybe 10 days or so I don't know that you really have a lot of insight to share about anything other than those 10 days I'm not sure that you'd be considered a a wise uh, a wise old owl of all things inside the beltway uh, but you know, may- hey, maybe I'm wrong. But hey, the mooch is weighing in. Hey, but he calls, he refers to himself as the mooch. So I don't think that I'm. Uh, this is not by any means a slight on Italian American heritage, you know, which he was clearly referring to in that in that soundbite. Um, he said that he had come a- come across r- racial slurs in his uh, in his past. He says Cuomo has as well. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I I take his uh, word at it, but. This does return me to something that I, I bring me back to something I wanted to raise with you, and that is uh, one Elizabeth Warren is just not a serious, should not be a serious candidate for anything. It's really to Massachusetts's shame that she represents them in the Senate. Uh, but the fact that people even talk about her as a presidential candidate, she has an entire career built on fraud. And I would just note that if. Uh, if we're now at a phase where, you know, inappropriate comments, not touching or anything else, but comments from someone's career 20 years ago could be grounds for them losing their career. Wouldn't an entire legal and academic resume built upon a lie also disqualify somebody from office? I mean, I know they're very different things, but it would seem to me that if, if we're expecting some degree of integrity from those who are going to hold elected office, uh, that should be applicable beyond even just 
sexual harassment. That, that should be applicable as a general concept. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old-fashioned that way, I suppose. Uh, one more note. I wanted to get, and we will have uh, producer Amy look into this. I would like to get on a uh, code talker, uh, a Native American code talker, because there are some who are still, who are still uh, living. And I would love to get one on the show if we could just to share some of the experiences because, you know, I, I was a, I am still a little bit uh, annoyed that the spat between Warren and Trump was getting more of got more of the attention that day, which was to honor the, the code talkers than the story of what those Native Americans did uh, from various I mean, most the most well known for the code talkers are Navajo, but there were also uh, there were Comanche and a whole a whole slew of different Native American tribes that were part of that. And I didn't know this. I looked this up because I was curious. It actually began in the First World War, um, and it was really the uh, it was an idea that came uh, came about from an officer on the front lines to who had experience back home and and there were some i don't know i don't don't think there were apache i forget what the tribe was but there were some members of a native american tribe who were with a a military unit and they and and a u.s army officer decided that he would utilize their language skills or their native language because the germans who were able to especially in the early days of uh, any kind of radio communications or telegraph very very easy to intercept that uh, the Germans could intercept Native American uh, Native American languages all day long, and they're like, "What is this? Like, I don't understand. Like, what is going on?" And they had no idea. Um, uh, understand? You know, that's just, and it was a huge advantage in the battlefield. So it started in the First World War and it's on small scale. The Second World War in the Pacific theater it was used much more, uh, but there were m- many more code talkers involved and and then there was that movie wind talkers with the nicholas cage as i mentioned yesterday Um, but there are some people who look back on that because code breaking played an enormous role in the second world war there's that uh, pretty recent movie the imitation game which i was frustrated it focused so much on the the personal life and the personal struggles i mean it's the middle of the second world war 60 million people lost their lives like i don't think we need to have so much of the, the 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 personal struggle of the primary code breaker out at uh, Bletchley Park and dealing with the you know the Enigma machine and and, and all of that, but it was over. It's an important story for people to know. But code breaking was a huge part of the war after the Second World War, and it became it came into prominence really uh, in the in the First World War, or it, it began to be an issue in the First World War in a way it had never before. So uh, anyway, I would like to spend some more. I would like to have somebody on if we can find a a code talker who would join the show. We will because uh, I would like to honor them. I would like to continue that conversation and, and not get distracted by the political dynamics around it. Uh, because those men, those those Native Americans uh, from various tribes were were heroes and they served this country uh, honorably and and they deserve their moment in in the national spotlight and and they deserve our appreciation. So I just wanted to note that. All right, we're going to get into some uh, Team Buck Speaks coming up here in just a few minutes. Uh, So stay with me, and we'll be right back. Just as a follow-up to yesterday's story, everybody on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I'm here to tell you that uh, 
all is well with the world or it's it's all going to be okay. Uh, well, maybe that's saying too much, but at least for now, Donald Trump's appointee has asserted control over the CFPB. Here's the uh, Wall Street Journal reporting. Workers at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau arrived at the office Monday to find two acting directors asserting dueling authority and facing off over the direction of one of the nation's financial watchdogs. The acting director appointed by the Trump administration, Mick Mulvaney, arrived a little before 730 Monday morning with two aides and a bag of donuts to work in the director's office across the street from the White House complex. The office had been vacated Friday by the departure of former director Richard Cordray. Mr. Mulvaney later outlined his immediate plans to change how the bureau operates, including putting in place a 30-day freeze on the issuance of new rules and hiring. So, in the in the attempted deep state bureaucratic coup within the CFPB, not the most exciting place in the world, I'm sure, but nonetheless, uh, it looks like the Trump team has emerged victorious. Also, on this guy, Richard Cordray, turns out that uh, he, he has political aspirations and that wasn't, uh, to be fair, the rest of CFPB, as of the most recent reporting, the rest of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau didn't think that this whole succession struggle uh, nonsense was a good idea. This was just cooked up between the top guy, Cordray, and his successor, Ms. England, and it was all about his future political aspirations. He's going to run, I think, for the governor or something or other. I, I, I forget what exactly. But he wants to be an elected official going into uh, in the future. And that's why for him, this was an opportunity to be hashtag resistance. And I would just note that we don't see this with other administrations. And it is to the uh, to the shame of those who engage in it. And that is that once there's a new once there's a new political regime, right? Once you have a new administration that is in place, it is not for the former administration's picks or uh, its personnel choices to take it upon themselves to really uh, defame the institutions that they once were entrusted with. Those institutions really belong to the American people. These are not their playthings or their own little platforms from which they can project their their careers right that that's not the way this is supposed to go and i would note that it's not just cfpb you have had this problem of stay behind obama administration elements in a whole bunch of uh, different parts of the executive branch and for example look at the whole mess over comey you can argue that the biggest single impediment for the Trump administration this year has resulted. I think actually it's a pretty clear argument. I don't know if there's a good counter argument. It seems pretty obvious that the single best uh, or the single most effective means of slowing down the Trump administration this year has been the stay behind so-called uh, deep state elements within the government because 
Comey got the whole Mueller probe going and Comey was an Obama appointee. Right. So we know that we know that Comey is an example of this, but and, and the whole Russia investigation has been such a giant waste of time and energy and uh, all the rest of it from the you know from the perspective of trying to get things done for the american people it's just been a disaster right it slows everything down but the Mueller probe uh, has just been grinding on and that's the result of a stay behind element within the government the environmental protection agency has had problems with this administration with some of its senior appointed personnel the uh, well, obviously the CFPB at the top level. It's it's reassuring, I think, to hear that there were some Consumer Financial Protection Bureau folks who were like, "What is going on here?" Mulvaney's running the show. The administration put him in charge. Let's go. You know, that's it. And it's just indicative of a of a mindset, and it's a mindset the media has fed into, or in many ways created, which is that I think there are a lot of folks in this government who still delude themselves perhaps but when they go to sleep at night they don't really believe that president trump is the president they think that this is some nightmare from which they will wake they think there's still a means by which they can undo the events of the election uh, last november one year ago this month, they think that there's something that will happen that will make this all end. And so they haven't really made the psychological switch. It is a bizarre circumstance. And yet here we are. Here we are. The, the hashtag resistance in the government is alive and well. Although I should note that uh, Keith Olbermann, he, he's he's a big hashtag resistance guy, not a government guy, but. He's throwing in the towel. You got to love this. He's done with his little GQ psychotic rants about the president because he says that it's imminent that the president's going to be impeached, which is just I, I, I do feel kind of bad even talking about it because I understand that that's part of the that's part of the decision making that they that he embarked on here. You know, it was, hey, I'm going to just make a mockery of myself, but a loud one on the way out to get more attention. It is really it, it speaks volumes that the Democrat media held this guy up for so long as some kind of wordsmith and political savant. Uh, he is I would know I have told you before there are other people at, for example, MSNBC whom I've heard are good folks. You know, they're wrong on everything, but they're nice people. Keith Olbermann is the opposite. I've heard from Democrats and Republicans who have been around him and worked with him universally a really bad, really bad, mean guy. Uh, but he's done because he thinks that the impeachment's going to come any day now. You know, they might have some charges against Flynn. They might try to make an example of Flynn. But it's not, once again, it's not going to do anything to the administration because there's nothing the administration did. Russia collusion is a fantasy. It is a delusion of the left. And it's not going away, unfortunately, anytime soon. And I think that whole notion of Russia collusion emboldens these deep state elements and these Obama leave behinds at the CFPB, at DOJ, State Department, Environmental Protection Agency, any number of places. It's a shame, really, because the taxpayer, the American people, American citizens, we, we deserve better than government employees who, you know, if they hate it so much, they can resign. But don't try to sabotage things from the inside. And that's what some of them are doing. All right, team, we'll be back with much more. Stay with me.
I know a lot of you listening have uh, kids, and I was just thinking today about how I am tired all the time and, and don't understand how so many of you are able to function. Many of you ha- have jobs and have a large role in taking care of the kids uh, or, or just are taking care of the kids all the time. I don't know how you do it. Uh, this is just a random thought, but it's amazing to me. Uh, I don't know how my parents did it. I don't know how all of you listening did it. I, I really want to have kids one day, but I just don't know how this how this is supposed to work. I guess I kind of just would walk around in uh, – maybe I just need to get more sleep, but I feel like I'd be walking around in some uh, kind of z- zombie-like trance or something. But, hey, if it means I get to have little cute Buck Jr. or Buckita, no, that's bad. That's not going to work. I have to come up with a better name for a little female – the next generation of Buck that is female. Buckita is uh, is not going to be good. Or Bucket. No, that's also not good. So we'll come up with something else. But I just, it was a random thought today as I was struggling to uh, get through all of the myriad things I had lined up for the day. Those of you with kids, I, I tip my hat to you. I don't know how you do it. I'm worried even about what my day-to-day would be like with a little furry companion. Never mind, a human being that I am responsible for. So parents out there, uh, wow, I am, I am in awe. I will just say it. I'm in awe. All right. Now, I wanted to get into a, a bit of the team Buck Speaks here today on the show. It's always fun for me to read through all your messages, and I like sharing them. And uh, here we go. Uh, oh, and I should note, officialteambuck at gmail.com, or uh, you can write to me at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. All right, here we go. Colin writes in with the following. Hey, Buck, just wanted to wish you best of luck in your hunt for a furry companion. Best advice I've received was this. Choosing some of the more intelligent breeds is not always good. If you leave a lab or German Shepherd puppy in an apartment for eight hours while you're at work, you come home to a construction site, but a Mastiff wouldn't even notice you left. I had a rot Mastiff mix in an apartment, and it was awesome. The most important thing is to find one that's right for you and yours. Best wishes to all the Freedom Hut team. Shields high, amigo, Colin. Well, Colin, shields high to you, and thank you. And you just reminded me of a a story that I will now tell you about how it is, in fact, necessary to choose the proper dog breed for your situation. I will say this was not my this was not my immediate family. This was a these were friends of the family. That many years ago, they chose to get in a pretty tight space New York City apartment. They got a Siberian Husky, you know, like a straight up sled dog out of the, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, Huskies are sled dogs. But it looked like something from Call of the Wild or White Fang or one of those books. And it was a beautiful animal. It was kind of a reddish color and it was a Husky. And there were two girls, two young girls in the family. And one of them, and for those of you listening, the only, no, no human beings are harmed in this story, but there, there, is a, there is some animal stuff that happens that might make some of you a, l- a little bit sad. But I'm going to tell you the story nonetheless, because it's, it's a public safety announcement. It's a warning about what can happen if you get the wrong kind of dog for your apartment, right? If you ha- live in the countryside or cold weather, you want to get a husky, great. If you live in a one-bedroom New York City apartment, maybe not the best idea. So, or I guess this was a two-bedroom apartment. They get the husky. And there's also, at this point, because one of the girls in the family is quite young, 
they there is a a class rabbit. Now I remember I had a class rabbit named Thumper, uh, like the rabbit from uh, what's that uh, where B- Bambi. I don't remember this rabbit's name. I never met this rabbit, and not nearly as many people ended up meeting this rabbit as probably would have had events transpired differently. So there was a class rabbit. I guess it was in the kindergarten. I think of a, of the school. And one of the young girls decided that she would take home the rabbit for the weekend, which you were allowed to do. You were allowed to be in charge of the class rabbit for the weekend. Now, I had seen this Siberian husky, this Siberian husky named Sonia. I had seen her in action before. I had seen her leap up and seize the entire carcass of a Thanksgiving turkey and get a massive bone stuck in the roof of her mouth. And uh, that was, you know, volunteering for who is going to reach into that wolf mouth was not that was not a fun thing. Uh, And I had also seen her do something that was always reminiscent to me of the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. Remember that one scene? Jurassic Park's a great movie. I mean, I know it's a little hokey in retrospect in some parts. It's a great book by Michael Crichton. And the movie really holds up. The CGI is actually really well done. But there's that scene where, well, you've got that British guy, of course, who's like, you know, uh, the, the smart, even problem-solving smart. Smart as chimpanzees, maybe smarter. And then there's the whole scene where they go, well, at least, unless they learn how to open doors, we're fine. Then you, a door opens. I had seen Sonia, the dog, go up on her hind legs and using her front legs jimmy open a door handle i had seen her do this now i'm not gonna lie to you it's of those of you with really smart dogs are like yeah my dog can basically make me sushi and go out and get the paper and like negotiate a better price for me i mean you know okay fine but i this dog was a wild animal was able to open doors and sure enough they brought home the rabbit for the weekend they left the apartment for some period of time and they had i believe Three, no less than three closed, but not locked doors separating the cage. It was in a cage uh, of the class rabbit and the Siberian Husky. And Sonia the Husky, who always reminded me a bit of the wolf from the Peter and the Wolf uh, what operetta, you know, kind of children's musical that I listened to countless times actually growing up. Uh, Sonia the Wolf had managed to get through all three doors. And what that family came back to was a broken rabbit cage. Sans rabbit. The rabbit had become uh, le pain, uh, the French dish. It was no longer with us, had been eaten. And, of course, then this precipitated a series of panic phone calls to the teacher of this, I believe, kindergarten class that, let's just call him Thumper, it'll make it easier. That Thumper had been eaten or Thumper had died. I don't know if she said my my guess is that Thumper had a mysterious heart attack. I'm not sure they went with the Thumper had been eaten scenario because that's, you know, probably shouldn't have left Thumper alone with the wolf babysitter. Uh, But Thumper had a mysterious little heart attack. It was very sad. And they had to replace Thumper. And sure enough, I believe they were able to replace the classroom rabbit with a rabbit that was similar looking. It was a kind of a a more more rare rabbit species uh, for pets, but they were able to find one in New York, here in New York City, 
and replace it. And I believe, and this was a very, very long time ago. I mean, we're going on like 20 years plus. So anything, any inaccuracies in my story, I just put it to memory. But I believe only one girl in the class was like, that's not Thumper. And the teacher was like, shh, quiet. It is Thumper. And so that is my story for all of you about how know your breed when you're picking out a canine companion. Go, go, with, a, uh, go with a smart choice. I, I realize I just took up a lot of our of our time for uh, for Team Buck Speaks with that one, but I did want to share that story with you. So why don't I do this? I will uh, promise that tomorrow we'll get into a longer Team Buck Speaks segment without me running off into uh, Never Never Land here with a story. Uh, I know you can pour out a little, pour out a little uh, wine or tequila tonight or whatever it is you drink. Those are the only things that I drink for for Thumper. No longer with us. Uh, for a long time, Thumper, he wouldn't be with us anyway. I mean, rabbits live for, how long do rabbits live? Rabbits live for like a few years, I think, maybe five or six, I don't know. But that I always remembered that story. I'll try to think of some other, I've got some pretty funny dog stories over the years growing up here in New York City. You're, uh, you're around a lot of stuff. Or you, you see a lot of people that make very interesting choices for their, their habitat for their canine friend. Uh, please download the show. Uh, you can do that by going on iTunes. Click Buck Sexton with America Now. Uh, and also, please do share it with a friend. The uh, biggest compliment you can possibly give the show is to tell people about it. Uh, we grow because you care about what we're doing here in the hut every day. Uh, you are our marketing mechanism. You are our word of mouth. So, I leave it to all of you to please tell folks about the show. And yes, there will be history shows separately in that. So if you subscribe now, you'll be good to go because when, when the history shows come out, you'll already be in the podcast stream. So even if you're a live listener, you want to subscribe because come early on in the year, you will have the podcast stream uh, ready to go with the special uh, history deep dives. So with that Have an excellent rest of your evening or day, depending on when you're listening to it. I'll see you tomorrow. Shields high.